navigates the complex world of politics, policy, and people. This is your go-to platform for insightful discussions, thought-provoking debates, and a fresh perspective on the issues that shape our world today. We're here to challenge the status quo, to question the narratives, and to bring you a balanced view on the matters that matter most. Your host, Charlton Allen, is a seasoned political analyst, a passionate advocate for freedom, and a firm believer in the power of informed dialogue. With his sharp intellect and candid style, Charlton is here to guide you through a labyrinth of contemporary politics, one episode at a time. So, whether you're a political junkie, a curious observer, or just someone looking for a deeper understanding of the world around you, you're in the right place. Welcome to the Modern Federalist. Welcome to the Revolution. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the inaugural episode of The Modern Federalist, the podcast that delves deep into the intricacies of politics, society, life, and liberty in the 21st century United States. I'm your host, Charlton Allen, founder of the Madison Center for Law and Liberty, a nonprofit organization dedicated to protecting America's heritage of freedom for the next generation and beyond. Now, you might be wondering why modern? And why Federalist? Those are fair questions. Well, let me explain. In today's rapidly changing world, American perspectives on liberty are more relevant now than ever. Our founding principles, rooted in the Federalist government established by our founders, continue to shape our nation's identity and guide our path forward. When we say modern, We're acknowledging that the challenges we face today are unique to our time. From technological advancements to evolving social dynamics, our society is constantly changing. And it is crucial that we analyze these changes through the lens of our American heritage. And why Federalist? We're not referring to the historical Federalist political party, but rather to the government instituted by our founders. It is best articulated in the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and the Federalist Papers. Figures like James Madison, for whom the Madison Center is named, Alexander Hamilton, and John Jay embodied the principles of federalism, which sought to strike a delicate balance between a centralized federal government, which was a federal government that was stronger than the government initiated by the Articles of Confederation, versus the rights of the individual states constituting the Union. So what exactly is federalism? It is a concept that lies at the heart of our nation's governance. It is about the division of powers between the federal government and the states, ensuring that both entities have their respective roles and responsibilities. As we travel this podcast road together, I will share more about the fundamental tenets of federalism as we go along. Now let's talk about the Madison Center for Law and Liberty. Our organization is dedicated to advancing the ideals of freedom, informing our citizenry, and holding politicians and government accountable. We believe that by upholding these principles of federalism and protecting our constitutional rights, we can ensure a brighter future 
for generations to come. As a fierce advocate for freedom, a student of history, a former public servant, and a lawyer, I am thrilled to be your host on this journey. Each episode of The Modern Federalist will feature insightful discussions, thought-provoking interviews, and analysis of the pressing issues that shape our nation. We'll explore topics such as the role of government in our lives, the balance between individual liberties and collective responsibility, and the challenges and opportunities presented by our ever-changing society. Together, we'll navigate the complexities of the 21st century United States and seek to find common ground, when possible, in the pursuit of a more perfect union. So whether you're a seasoned political enthusiast or just starting to explore the world of American politics, the Modern Federalist is here to provide you with a fresh perspective and engage in meaningful conversations that matter. Now that we have the introductory housekeeping measure squared away, let's get started. We have a packed agenda today, so let's dive right in. Our first segment is an interview with an executive from the Ronald Reagan Foundation and Presidential Library. We'll be discussing their current exhibition on Auschwitz, an extraordinary collection of more than 700 original artifacts that bear witness to one of the darkest chapters of human history. Next, we'll be recapping the recent Iowa caucus. The results were a landslide victory for Donald Trump, with Ron DeSantis coming in second, Nikki Haley in third. We'll be discussing what these results mean for the upcoming presidential race. And finally, we'll be speaking with Grant Leffler, the publisher of the Carolina Review. We'll be gathering his thoughts on the recent departure of the Chancellor of UNC Chapel Hill and the interim appointment to the Office of Chancellor. The Carolina Review is the right of center student publication at UNC, and we're looking forward to hearing Grant's perspective. So stay tuned. We have a lot of ground to cover. Let's get started. segment, I am joined by Melissa Giller, an executive with the Ronald Reagan Foundation and Institute in Simi Valley, California. There is a significant exhibit at the Reagan Library that is concluding later this month, and I appreciate Melissa joining us today to inform our listeners. The exhibit is an immersive view of the history of the Auschwitz concentration camp and the crimes against humanity perpetrated there. And the words of the exhibit, not long ago and not far away. I find this exhibit profoundly important, not simply as the grandson of a liberator of other concentration camps, but also because of the state of our world today. Melissa, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Could you provide an overview of the Auschwitz exhibit at the Reagan Library? Yeah, of course. So Auschwitz, Not Long Ago, Not Far Away is a 12,000 square foot exhibition. It's important to note that the library is the only location in the entire West Coast to house this exhibition. Um, And it showcases over 700 authentic artifacts uh, that were direct witnesses to the horrors of Auschwitz and the Holocaust and really tells the story of... um, the rise of anti-Semitism through the Holocaust and beyond. 
What are some of the key artifacts or exhibits that visitors should look for? Sure. So with 700 artifacts, it's hard to just pinpoint a few, but some of the ones that really seem to resonate with our audiences is we have an actual um, portion of a barracks from the Auschwitz Monowitz camp. Visitors actually walk through the barracks. Uh, we also have three fence posts that were used, authentic fence posts that were used to guard Monowitz. Of course, that um, Auschwitz Monowitz, of course, they were electrified then, um, but it really gives you a sense of, of how the prisoners were kept inside the camps. Um, we also have things like, it's horrifying to see an actual I use the word medical table very lightly, but medical table and instruments used to really perform horrific uh, surgeries and experiments on the uh, prisoners themselves. And we even have um, the original ballot uh, to elect Adolf Hitler. How long does it typically take for a visitor to go through the entire exhibition? So again, it's 12,000 square feet, but there are 50, five zero, there are 50 audio stops within the exhibition itself. Um, that both highlight artifacts and give the history of the Holocaust, as well as actual um, uh, survivor testimony videos and audio. So when you combine the audio with what you're seeing, most visitors are taking two and a half hours to go through this exhibition alone, not not alone uh, taking into account any time you might take in the Reagan Library itself. And the exhibition is entitled Auschwitz, Not Long Ago, Not Far Away. Could you elaborate on the significance of this title? Yeah, the um, creator of the exhibition picked this title for a specific reason. You know, it's easy to say, oh, the Holocaust was in the 1940s or started in the 30s, but, you know, ended in the 40s. You know, that was eons ago. But in the scope of history, it really was not that far away, really was not that long ago. And in fact, the first thing you see when you enter this exhibition is a huge world map with a pinpoint of Poland and where Auschwitz was and a pinpoint of where Simi Valley, the Reagan Library is. And it shows you that, again, not that far away and in our history scope, not that long ago. How does this exhibition aim to convey the profound gravity of Auschwitz and the Holocaust to its visitors? Yeah, so the exhibition starts really by taking a step back and starting with anti-Semitism that existed as early as the 1500s. Um, it leads into the rise of anti-Semitism, the rise of the Nazi party, the rise of Hitler. And then it takes visitors through that rise, ultimately taking you into the camps itself, um, and even takes you to, there are 700 authentic facts, only three are replicas, and two of the replicas are basically replicas of how the gas chambers worked. And um, they show you how they were locked inside. They show you how the, um, the gas was released and the people were poisoned to death. And then it uses survivor testimony, audio, video, and um, quotes on walls to explain the gravity of what they saw, of what they witnessed, of how they survived or didn't survive. And really, it's that, for me personally, that survivor testimony is so much weightier to me than even just seeing the artifacts, because it puts a story to each artifact. And you, it, it, you'd you be very hard-pressed to walk through that exhibition and not feel something and, and not realize the horrific nature of the Holocaust. Given the resurgence of anti-Semitism today, how does this exhibition resonate with the current global context? Yeah. 
So again, right? Auschwitz not long ago, not far away. And with what happened um, in Israel with the attack by Hamas, never again is now. Um, we, we are here again. Um, and that's really what we're trying to share with this exhibition. Um, toward the beginning of the exhibition, one of the quotes on the wall is a very famous poem. You've probably heard of it. And I'm, I apologize, I'm probably pronouncing his last name wrong, but it was from a pastor, um, I think Martin uh, Neeler. And um, that gets it at right complete global context. This exhibition isn't just about the Holocaust. It isn't just about Auschwitz. It's about what happens when you turn a blind eye to hatred. And his poem is basically... And I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, first they came for the communists. I didn't speak out because I wasn't a communist, right? Then they came for the socialists and the trade unionists. They came for the Jews. And then they came for me and there was no one left to speak out for me. That's what this exhibition is about. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that quote. Uh, this past fall, I was at the Holocaust Museum in Washington, and I, I took a picture of that quote on the wall, and it has you know, resonated with me ever since. Yes, and I think in tar- talking about the global context today and the hatred, um, not just anti-Semitry, you know, bigotry, hatred, you name it. Um, if we don't speak out for the injustices that we see, it will happen again. And you've pretty much touched on this, but you know, want to circle back a bit. How important is it for us to remember that Auschwitz and the genocide happened not long ago and not far away? So we've been really fortunate. In addition to the exhibition that's open, uh, the Reagan Foundation has been able to sit down and video interview over a dozen Holocaust survivors, um, as well as over half a dozen family members of survivors. And in fact, in November, we brought together a 95-year-old Auschwitz survivor with a 26-year-old Israeli survivor of the Hamas attack. And when the two of them were speaking, they realized the similarities of their stories of what happened to them, the surprise attacks, the deaths they witnessed. And in all of the interviews we did, the same story came out over and over again. These people and their family members of those survivors, it's so important to tell the stories of what happened at Auschwitz and what happened in the Holocaust so that we do make sure it doesn't happen again and so that we make sure that their stories aren't forgotten and those that lived and those that died and the struggles that they went through are never forgotten. And so we need to remember this happened not long ago, not far away. We need to remember these stories. We need to honor the lives of those who were lost. And this exhibition is recommended for ages 12 and up. I take it from what you've already told us and and all that the experience is very emotional and intense. Yeah, exactly. Um, The curators of the exhibition did want to make sure that they never used images of violence or any graphics of deaths that were just gratuitous in nature. So although, like if you go to Yad Vashem or you go to the Washington, D.C. Memorial, that are horrific, that are important to see, of you know, piled bodies in, 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 you know, mass graves. You won't see that at the Reagan Library. Still, it is such an emotional exhibition. The information you're learning is so grave that we don't want children to go through who don't necessarily understand it. Of course, any family member can bring their children if they'd like to, but we really do recommend for someone to understand what they're seeing 12 and above. Could you share some of the visitor reactions or feedback to the exhibition so far? Yeah, you know, as you can imagine, it's it's really twofold. On the one hand, it's people who become so emotional within the exhibition, they actually can't finish. 
you know, they have to step out. They have to maybe go get lunch and, and take a breath and, you know, sit outside for a while before they go back in. We're also getting people who are writing us letters thanking us for sharing this important message. Um, an eighth grade class came through and one of the students wrote us a thank you letter saying, you know, she's heard about the Holocaust, you know, in the history books, but she never understood it. And now she understands it. That's what this exhibition is about. When is the, the last day the exhibition will be open to the public at the Reagan Library? Yeah, so it closes at the Reagan Library on January 28th, 2024, so just a few weeks from now. That date was specifically chosen because January 27th, one day before it closes, is International Holocaust Remembrance Day, and we wanted to make sure the exhibit was open for the public to see. Once it closes at the Reagan Library, it moves on to the East Coast, and then all 700 objects get returned to their lenders. And how can interested individuals purchase tickets or plan their visit to the exhibition? Yeah. So thank you for asking that. We really are recommending that people purchase their tickets in advance because we do sell out and we would hate for people to drive all the way out to the Reagan Library only to find out there are no tickets to be had. So the easiest way is reaganlibrary.com. And then you can navigate your way through to tickets or Auschwitz. Um, if you want Auschwitz information specifically and you can remember it, it's reaganlibrary.com slash Auschwitz. Either way, we'll get you that information. And uh, we do sell tickets in thirty every 30 minutes in 30-minute increments, with the last ticket being sold at 2.30 since we close at 5 and it takes two and a half hours to get through the exhibit. So where's the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library located? So we're located in Simi Valley, California, which is in Ventura, maybe 35 or so miles outside of Los Angeles, sort of the halfway point between Los Angeles and Santa Barbara, if that helps anybody. Um, and when you purchase a ticket to the Reagan Library, um, not only will you see the Auschwitz exhibition between now and January 28th, but that ticket also does get you into the Reagan Library. You know, we have a original Air Force One airplane that flew seven presidents that you can walk through. We have a um, replica of the Oval Office. We have a piece of the Berlin Wall. So um, if you have all day, <laughs> uh, we really recommend you come out and, you know, again, learn from history, experience this Auschwitz exhibition. And then if you have time, uh, take a little bit of time to walk through the Reagan Library on a little bit lighter mood and see some extraordinary items there, too. Melissa, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I strongly encourage any listeners who can make it to the exhibition before it ends at the Reagan Library to do so. We must never allow such evil to occur again. For more information, please go to the Ronald Reagan Foundation's website at reaganfoundation.org. The Modern Federalist, hosted by Charlton Allen, will return in a moment. this segment, we're taking a dive into the recently completed Iowa caucus, or as the late Rush Limbaugh coined it, the Hawkeye Caucus. I will give you my hot take on the results from Iowa, but also take a brief look ahead to New Hampshire, South Carolina, and beyond. 
But first, a brief historical footnote. Iowa caucus is not a primary. It operates with a rather Byzantine procedure that favors the three strongest candidates to the detriment of less popular ones. This has typically served to winnow the field to the three frontrunners. This year, the weather depressed turnout, but the lackluster turnout is something I would watch in subsequent contests. Specifically, weak GOP turnout may portend an unenthusiastic electorate. Now let's talk about the big winners. First up, Donald Trump, who exceeded expectations and won more than 50% of the vote. Secondly, Biden, who seems more likely to be running against his preferred candidate, that is Donald Trump, than one of the other contenders. I will say the wisdom of that preference by Mr. Biden remains to be seen. The third big winner, in my view, is Robert F. Kennedy Jr., whose independent campaign will likely be a much more serious candidacy if this is a rematch of Biden-Trump. Looking ahead to New Hampshire and beyond, the window of opportunity for Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis is a narrow one. In my view, Haley has two must-wins ahead of her in New Hampshire, where polling is mixed, and her home state of South Carolina, where Trump has a consistent lead. Neither is a given at this point, and her chances are better in New Hampshire right now. DeSantis has to hope support for Haley collapses in New Hampshire and South Carolina, and he can make this a two-person race. Even then, so long as Trump continues to boat race his opponents, he will be the likely winner. Neither Haley nor DeSantis will win the nomination by stacking second-place finishes. Next week, I will take a look at the results of the New Hampshire primary and where things stand at that time. Always want a bad boy, they make me feel good. We are back today with Grant Leffler, the publisher of the Carolina Review, the conservative libertarian publication at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Today, we are discussing the upcoming departure of UNC Chancellor Kevin Guskowitz. Thank you for joining us today, Grant. Yes, glad to be back. Let's dive in. What is your analysis of Kevin Guskowitz's leadership at UNC during his tenure as chancellor? Well, I think it's for the most part, it was somewhat of a good tenure. I think importantly, as a student myself, uh, he did uh, forge positive relations with the student body and generally just because of the fact that he's a generally kind of likable, easygoing kind of guy that is easy to talk to. He generally seems to care about the students' well-being and uh, wants to forge good relations with them. So on that front, I do think he had very good marks on that front. But I also think he had generally okay marks when it came to creating a environment on campus regarding free speech and uh, civic discourse. Uh, he did uh, basically, of course, support the uh, foundation of the uh, early, tolerate, tolerate, I would say, the foundation of the uh, School of Civic Life and Leadership, which has been a big point of controversy on campus for the past little while. And he's also, uh, he forged a committee on uh, to explore both academic freedom and freedom of expression and to basically exploring these kind of ideas of how the university can be better when it comes to forging a community surrounding around ideas of intellectual diversity and uh, civil discourse. So for that, I do give him positive marks on that. 
However, I do at the same time do believe that some of his statements on the free speech issue were more ideas and less action. Uh, for example, uh, for Canada uh, Review ourselves, we did go through an incident and uh, during COVID time with vandalism. Uh, both our boxes have been vandalism multiple times, but most importantly, our website at the time was vandalized, basically taking off articles and taking off a bunch of uh, previous editions that will really never be seen again. And uh, basically the university's response to that was to condemn it, but really not offer any resources to find the, find the perpetrators and anything like that, which is surprising given the fact that we are a, you know, technically a student club. Uh, we are, you know, kind of somewhat sanctioned under the university to some extent. And so the fact that the university would not offer up resources uh, to kind of investigate what was a clear violation of this, the school's first amendment policies was surprising to us. But so I do express, you know, some level of complaint on that. However, I do believe that he did lay somewhat of the first steps on the cut comes to creating a fostering a culture of intellectual diversity and religious uh, civil discourse on campus. So for that, I will appreciate him. Can you provide insights into the factors that may have contributed to Guskowitz's departure? Well, I have my theories. I really have two, I think two factors really played into this. First of all, his his tenure has not been totally untumultuous. Uh, he has had uh, go through COVID, but really beyond COVID, on the political matters, he did kind of preside over the brouhaha over Nicole Hannah Jones's tenureship and the re- revocation of it, and so on and so forth. That whole controversy, and uh, also there was the uh, loss of uh, the university loss at the spring at the spring court when students for fair admissions basically brought a case against the university's race-based admissions process. And of course, you know, the Supreme Court struck that down uh, based on the Equal Protections Clause in the 14th Amendment. Uh, basically, that was a very public loss for him. And so I do understand that he might be someone looking for somewhat of a clean slate uh, at another university, whether that be Michigan State in the sunny shores of uh, Lansing, Michigan. But nonetheless, I do also believe that the board of trustees and the board of governors are becoming increasingly more openly conservative in some respects. And come uh, guess what? He's definitely not an ideological figure that much. He's, you know, he's, I would say he definitely doesn't lean to the left uh, just based off his previous positions, but he's not, you know, a raging politician by any stretch of the imagination. However, he does seem like someone that does not want to deal with the board trustees and the board governors if they are pushing a more politically uh, politically dominant position when it comes to uh, political issues, which has really just been going on over the past uh, few years here at UNC. So I do think that he did potentially once wanted to get away from that based on that it didn't really what with his beliefs in that respect. Yeah, it's interesting you brought that up because, uh, as I'm sure you're aware, North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper recently attributed uh, the chancellor's departure to political interference from the appointed trustees of the university and the UNC Board of Governors. I have to admit, when I saw that, uh, I found that particularly rich coming from Roy Cooper, who has been the most brazenly partisan governor in my lifetime in this state. (laughs) Nonetheless, do you believe that there could be any further um, political factors at play? Well, I, I mean, 
Roy Cooper, when Governor Cooper was basically kind of mentioning that he believed that he was kind of pushed out politically, he was almost kind of insinuating that there was like this vote of no confidence going around regarding his leadership. I have got no indication that that's the case at all. I do know that, you know, of course, Guskiewicz and the board trustees of board of governors didn't always see eye to eye, but it was a working relationship, no doubt. And even along some of his, you know, the more conservative members of the board of trustees, such as Marty Cotis, when I've spoken to him, on the record, he has mentioned that despite you know, his complaints, he does he did still have an overarching confidence in him and was kind of in the wait and see regarding his plans. This is especially evident uh, after the SCOS decision over the summer, the university kind of haphazardly announced that they were going to offer free tuition to a certain number of students without really running it by the board of trustees or the board of governors. Of course, you know, the board of trustees, the board of governors kind of revolted, uh, or I wouldn't say revolted, but more so criticized what was going on and was confused and concerned about this decision until it came out that it was actually, you know, lesser than what the, but Guskiewicz was kind of claiming in terms of how, you know, many students would be able to get uh, free tuition. And for, to that, it wasn't really objectionable to the board of governors and the board of trustees, but the way that he initially presented, it seemed like it was like a like kind of dictatorial statement that he was going to basically decree that certain students get free tuition. Uh, but even with kind of that whole kerfuffle, there wasn't really any kind of indication that there was like this major unhappiness with what was going on with uh, Guskwitz's leadership. And if anything, I've heard more positives coming from even some of the more conservative members of the Board of Governors, the Board of Trustees in recent years regarding his leadership. As I previously mentioned, he has taken steps to kind of foster a culture of civil discourse and free speech on campus that has been quite frankly, well-recepted by these members. While not a political factor, as part of the Madison Center's research into the situation, I received a copy of an email to an administrator at Carolina from the former president at the University of Michigan, or as they say in sports sometimes, Michigan, (laughs) attempting to dissuade Chancellor Guskowitz from entering the transfer portal to Michigan State Proving, if nothing else, I suppose the Wolverine-Spartan rivalry is alive and well. As as an Ohio State fan, I'm very glad to hear that, as they are <laughs> both two two of my school's rivals, or you know, my because my my home state school in in, the, in Ohio, and so I'm I'm very glad to see that Michigan is having a little internal civil war. So that's that pleases my heart. Yeah, anytime your rivals are fighting each other, that's a good thing. It is. It is. Looking ahead, in your opinion, what qualities and attributes should the search committee prioritize when selecting the new chancellor for UNC? Well, I think they should try to look for someone that kind of basically mirrors some of the same positive attributes, I think, that Chancellor Guskowitz uh, had during his tenure. Of course, I think having good relationships with the student body is extremely important, especially, you know, in the day and age where there's always, you know, in college and university, there's always a little bit of a natural kind of basically opposition between the administration and the students. They, you know, there's always this kind of idea that, you know, they're not looking out for interest. And I do think that even though there were some criticisms here and there, I think generally most students did have a positive view of him and just kind of liked him as a person. And so I do think as there is a personal aspect to getting a chancellor uh, as someone who can kind of relate to the students and, you know, be very available and be very personable with them. I think that's very important. I also think in a the terms of a new chancellor when it comes to more kind of business side, practical and, you know, governing at the university. I do think it's important that 
there is someone who kind of continues the steps that were made on campus regarding a fostering a culture of free expression uh, with the creation of, you know, the School of Civil, Civic Life and Leadership and also the uh, creation and the recommendations that are soon to be forthcoming of the Committee on Academic Freedom and Free Expression. I, I do believe that someone that will not kind of know Brodo's out based on kind of partisan political grounds is very important to get as a future chancellor and kind of continue some of the work that uh, Gus Gwitz was doing. However, I also do think that it is might be good in looking out, trying to at least get someone that is more action oriented rather than just issuing statements here and there, not really following up and issuing any really decisions in my personal opinion. And dovetailing with that uh, response, uh, how important is it to ensure intellectual diversity in the search for a new chancellor? And what steps could be taken to achieve that? Yeah, I think it's very important to get intellectual diversity. I think it's very important to for a new chancellor to really kind of appreciate the opinions of all others and not be of the position that I believe in my side, therefore, you know, all the other, you know, organizations that and faculty don't agree with me can you know eat grass basically to some extent and so i i do think you know there has to be someone who as a chancellor is you know somewhat diplomatic and is able to is necessarily an ideologue but has a point of view that can but can basically make people come together over you know shared ideas and i think importantly you know i think that shared idea should be you know the expansion of you know free expression and free speech and civic dis- civil discourse on campus. Uh, but I do believe that the university uh, the search committee should at least you know, take those factors into account when they are searching for their new chancellor. And as you know, Lee Roberts has been named the interim chancellor. Considering uh, Mr. Roberts' background as the former North Carolina budget director and his family's political connections, do you think he would be a good fit for the permanent chancellor position? I, I think he would, because he is kind of that as I was just kind of alluded to, that person that comes to the, comes to the chancellorship of a point of view, but isn't an ideologue and someone that can be a diplomat and bring people together. I do think he is uh, potentially a good candidate uh, for that. However, in kind of his interview so far, ever since taken over, he has somewhat indicated that, well, this is just, you know, a temporary permanent position uh, until, you know, the new chancellor is uh, decided. And also, uh, that basically he just kind of wants to do no harm in his tenure and also lead a smooth transition. So like he's almost kind of pulling himself out of basically being selected as chancellor. So, but I believe someone kind of like Lee Roberts should be selected as chancellor or at least be investigated as chancellor because he does kind of express all the attributes of, I think, an ideal chancellor here at UNC. Yes, he does. And maybe he's just playing politician right now and acting like he's not interested and then we'll be interested once uh, it gets further along. Who knows? What are some of the key challenges and opportunities that the new chancellor will face at Carolina? Well, I think once the uh, School for Civic Life and the Leadership finally really gets underway and is almost established, I do expect there to be a lot of faculty opposition to the formation of the school in more ways than one. I think there'll be probably on-campus protests. I feel it'll be calls for uh, whoever's uh, he or she's resignation. And so I do believe that it's important for the incoming chancellor to really expect there to be some level of protest uh, regarding some of the uh, goals that the university has set out in the previous few years. How do you think the departure of Kevin Guskowitz will impact the future direction and priorities of UNC? 
Well, hopefully it doesn't have much of a effect, uh, given if the new chancellor that they pick kind of agrees with uh, Guskwit's goals of there being also uh, forging relations with students, while also, you know, trying, trying to create a better atmosphere for all students on campus when it comes to their uh, intellectual pursuits. Uh, I, I hope, I'm hopeful in believing that those uh, goals won't change, but time will tell. Finally, and we have kind of already covered some of this territory, but what qualities and qualifications would you personally look for in the next chancellor of UNC Chapel Hill? On a, per, on a personal level, I would say someone that is, as Kevin Guskowitz was, someone that just kind of gets along with the students, uh, doesn't really have an antagonistical relationship with them, and really just uh, understands their needs and concerns because really, you know, the university is sort of students and, you know, the uh, head of the university should be there for the students. So I believe that's very important for whoever he or she may be uh, for the next chancellor, should they really take that into mind. Well, Grant, thanks for joining us today. If you are interested in the work of the Carolina Review and its stellar team of student journalists, I encourage you to go to their website, carolinareviewonline.org, and learn more. Thank you so much for tuning in to the inaugural episode of The Modern Federalist. I hope you've enjoyed our political discourse and found it insightful. Your time and interest in our podcast are greatly appreciated. As we conclude today's episode, let us remember the importance of our republic, the values it stands for, and the freedoms it guarantees. Our republic is not just a form of government. It is a symbol of our shared beliefs, our unity, and our resilience. It is a beacon of hope and liberty, and it is worth every effort to preserve and protect. So let's continue this journey together, learning, discussing, and doing our part in safeguarding our republic. I look forward to having you again on the next episode of The Modern Federalist. Till then, stay informed, stay engaged, and remember, your voice matters in this grand endeavor. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to The Modern Federalist. Don't forget to subscribe for more thought-provoking episodes. Until next time.